Amen. Please do turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 29. And we're starting again in verse 31. We'll work our way about halfway through Genesis 30 today. All up until these 13 recorded children are born. Um, as you're turning there, what kinds of thoughts crossed your mind as we read through this passage at the beginning of our service today? Oh, there's all kinds of stuff happening in this passage. Jacob has 13 children, simply put, right? Jacob has all these children uh, by four different women. Four different women. And Jacob wasn't a widower. Uh, there wasn't any divorce or remarriage or anything like that. There were just four women. Jacob's wives. Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. Uh, sisters, sister wives, plus, plus two. So what do you do with the passage like this? Jacob is the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, right? This sounds like a good thing. So is this okay? It's in the Bible. Is this not a big deal? Surely we might think there, there's got to be something in this passage of the Bible that, that we can look at and see these people who are considered heroes in Israel and learn a lesson. There's got to be some moral of the story here. Well, no, there doesn't. Not in that way. Not, not from the actions of man, anyway. Or maybe the moral is what not to do. But what there is is a story of a lot of sin. What Jacob and these women are doing, this is, this is a big deal, and it's not okay. And so what we see in this passage is another example of God taking the actions of fallen man, maintaining the truth that every human life is a gift and a reward from him, even when it comes out of sinful actions. And then we see God bringing good, God bringing good out of the mess that is in this world, uh, even people like us. One thing that Jacob is going to ask in this passage that I think is extremely poignant is his question to Rachel in her anger over her barrenness. Jacob asks her, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? And the answer to that question is no. No, he was not. And that's good news. That's good news. We see over and over again throughout the whole grand narrative of the Bible, of Scripture, from Adam and Eve to the very end, men and women who fail, who fall short of the glory of God, who sin. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7 concerning himself, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And later on he writes, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And his answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What we see in the grand narrative of the Bible is a sinful world and a providential, sovereign, long-suffering, loving God who, who works in and orchestrates each of these pieces to bring about the one man who alone is without sin, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, at the betrayal of one of his disciples, sin, at the manipulation of the Sanhedrin, more sin, with the rejection of the Jewish people, who were sinners, brought about the sacrifice that took away our sin. 
that took our sin debt away. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death. He died in our place. And all who place their faith and trust in Christ's finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, that person is saved. Given Christ's righteousness, given eternal life by God's grace. By God's grace. This is the gospel message. Now, trying to make Jacob a great guy and making excuses for his actions so that we can all try to be like Jacob and and get ourselves into heaven, that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. And if you think about it, that's exactly why we should be thankful that all this stuff is recorded in the Bible. The Bible is God's word. It is true. It's real. It's reliable. Nothing is being swept under the rug in this story to make us think higher than we ought to think about Jacob. We can trust in God's word. It's honest. And it's true. So when it says in the Bible that God saved sinful people and used them to bring about something really important— We can look at this and say, yeah, that's consistent. I'm a sinner too. And God saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God can bring about good things through my life as well, even though I am a sinner. Now, with all that in mind, with all that in mind, we can look at a passage like this today and acknowledge, yes, this all happened but it doesn't mean that it was approved. Just because people did things in the Bible and God worked good out of it in the end does not give us the green light to commit the same sin. The description of an event in history is not a prescription for repeated action. Description is not prescription. If you go to the doctor and they tell you a story of how a person got an infection and they refused treatment, and then therefore lost a limb. But they came to value what they'd lost and they started a nonprofit organization that provide prosthetic limbs to those in need. What a story. That's a nice story. And you're glad everything worked out in the end the way it did. But that doesn't mean if you go to the doctor with an infection, you also should refuse treatment. Description is not prescription. So then, what is God's prescription? And the answer is a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. God made a male and a female in Genesis 1 and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, which, without going into too much detail, obviously requires their biologically, scientifically defined, gendered anatomy. And God further defined this relationship between the man and the woman in Genesis 2.24, where he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, which is a double definition there, isn't it? A man and a wife, the man leaves his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And this terminology of one flesh, it's right to understand from the relationship standpoint, the two becoming one, a union. But it's right also to consider it in the physical sense. Once the two become one flesh, when the marriage is physically consummated, the two become one flesh. And that man and that woman are to hold fast together as a unit. Jesus reiterates this in Mark 10. You know, there's, there's many people today who argue, and as we look at these verses and we think through this issue, uh, we're, not, we're, we're, we're not just addressing polygamous or, or polyamorous marriages, which those are on the uptick, at least in the media right now, but also any other form of relationship that is not one man and one woman. So this would include any kind of homosexuality as well. But there are people who, when trying to make a case or, or ask questions about the right or wrong of these issues, they, they might ask, say, well, does the New Testament say anything about this? Uh, we know it's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Or, or even more importantly, did Jesus ever speak to this? Uh, the idea being, if only the Old Testament says something, and if the New Testament doesn't, then God must have changed his tune. Or if the New Testament says something, but, but it wasn't from the mouth of Jesus himself, well, then maybe it's not just very important, because Jesus didn't say it. You know, these arguments are, are fallacious. They're, they're not right. They're not logical. They're not good. The whole Bible, Genesis Revelation, is God's word. It's God's word. So whether Jesus said something in the Gospels, or if it was written in, for instance, Ephesians 5, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, for example, all of it is God's authoritative word. But Jesus did speak to this. So even if a person says they won't listen unless Jesus said it himself, here it is, Mark 10. As the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to read the law the same way they were, they were reading the Bible trying to find ways to get away with their sin, their selfishness, their greed, and Jesus takes them back before the law to creation, God's work of creation. And he doubles down on this definition of marriage that God gave at creation and through creation in Genesis 2. So in Mark 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so listen, and, and, and we need to say this with humility. We say this with humility. Uh, but a Christian or any church claiming to be Christian who says the Bible does not claim this either is speaking in ignorance because they simply haven't read it, Ignorance is not a derogatory term, but just meaning they don't know yet. They either don't know yet because they haven't read it, or they do not believe in or submit themselves to God's authority in his written word. Which inevitably results in man choosing his own opinion or desire over God's revealed word. If the Bible cannot be interpreted, if the Bible uh, is... is underneath of the authority of tradition or man's opinion, who's going to win every time if there's a disagreement? It's not God's word. 
So God's word is either true or it's not, and it is either authoritative or it's not, and we don't get to decide which one it is. He is our maker. So we cannot say that I'm making my own truth. I cannot have my own truth when it is in direct opposition to the truth revealed in God's word. There's lots of people who say they love God and they love the Bible, but they do not want to obey him or obey his word. That is inconsistent. And that we should say in humility as well. Because that goes over all matters of life and godliness, doesn't it? So we all should hear that and go, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Uh, but some, somebody might love the idea of God, or they may love the God they have redefined to be kind of like a benevolent grandfather figure who just delights in everything that we do or, or approves of every desire we might have. But if, if a person refuses to obey the one true God, uh, and or if they continually refuse to read his written word, then how can they say they are loving God, loving his word? Does that make sense? And we, Christians, we are not loving others by giving them approval in their sin. We are called to speak the truth in love for their benefit, for their building up, it says in Ephesians 4. We speak the truth in love for gospel rescue and for edification. And we know this sin destroys, sin kills. So we don't, we don't want to give people a thumbs up and encourage them to press down that gas pedal as they drive off of a cliff to their own destruction. We cry out for them to stop the car and turn around. We cry out for their repentance. And we do that because we love them. We desire their good and their health and their life and their forgiveness, and their joy. So I, I know that was a bit of a tangent, but a, but a much needed one. And with all these things being said, uh, as we think of this passage today, we are not to look at this passage today and, and just turn a blind eye or, or excuse the sinfulness of polygamy, specifically in this passage. We know every other time polygamy is recorded in the Bible, bad things are happening as we've studied through the book of Genesis, we've, we've seen the trouble and the consequences that came along with the polygamy of, of Lamech and, and Abraham and Esau. Even the future kings of Israel and Judah were, were forbidden from becoming polygamists. A, a king in the ancient Near East having many wives would have been expected. It would have been strange for a king not to have many wives in those days. But in Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, God says, and he, or meaning any future king in Israel he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And then in 1 Kings 11, regarding King Solomon specifically, it says this, uh, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to all the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. And just to make sure we understand that, it wasn't about ethnicity, it was about worship. 
Because any one of those people, God told them to welcome, welcome the alien. If a person were to come into Israel, like Ruth, for instance, and decide to worship the true God, Boaz didn't do wrong marrying Ruth. It was about worship. And so Solomon had all these wives, and in verse 7 and 8, we get to see what came of this. Verse 7 says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And, And so he did for all his foreign wives. And we know that's a lot. He did this for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. So King Solomon, the builder of God's temple, became King Solomon, builder of many, many temples for many, many gods. You get the idea? There's a number of instances of polygamy in the Old Testament, and it never goes well. And it is always contrary to God's design for marriage. In our case study for today, our example today, Jacob. So that's, that's the introduction, okay? So chapter 29, verse 31. Now let's look into this passage and see what, what transpires. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, or when the, lo- the Lord saw that Rachel was preferred over Leah, he opened Leah's womb. But Rachel was barren. The idea there, God being sovereign over both of those realities there. Okay? He opened Re- Leah's room, uh, womb. Rachel was barren. And it says, Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. Reuben's name means, look, a son. Or more likely, uh, Leah believed she was given a son because the Lord had looked on her and shown her compassion. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And that's our first scene into what these ladies really want, is the affection of Jacob. It says in verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon's name comes from the word for hearing. Uh, previously, the Lord looked, he saw Reuben, and then God heard Simeon. Again, verse 34, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time, my husband will be attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name is called Levi. And Levi sounds like the, the verb to join, as in Jacob would be especially joined or attached to her. And then she conceived again and bore a son, number four, and said, This time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore she called this name Judah. And Judah's name means he will be praised. And then she ceased bearing. So so in the first three births, we see Leah being thankful to the Lord. That's good. Acknowledging God as the giver of life. That's true. But the reward she truly sought was this reward of a husband who loved her her. And on the one hand, we may be saddened or hurt with Leah in this situation. And even hurt a little bit as we kind of see in these responses she gives, this desire waning in her, like she's giving up on this hope, as she gets to the naming of Judah. Uh, But one thing that she's learning is that Jacob, Jacob will never be the source of her life's deepest joy. If her life could only be joyful, if Jacob is for her what she desires him to be, he will never be enough. That bar will always keep moving. Uh, Ladies, your husband, or just a husband, 
cannot be the epicenter of joy and purpose in your life. That's a burden only God can bear and only God can fulfill. And you will only ever truly enjoy your spouse or enjoy your children or any other relationship and you will only be able to truly sacrificially love them when Christ is in his rightful place in your heart. So for Leah, if the Lord is her joy and her strength, she then can have peace with or without Jacob's affection. Not ease, not just easy life, not everything perfect and in its right place according to her perspective, but peace even in the midst of the chaos when the Lord is her joy and her strength. And she can praise him for the gift of this precious life, this baby Judah. Isn't it amazing as well as we look at the last two names mentioned? Levi, the father of uh, Moses, Aaron, uh, the priest of Israel, and then Judah, the forefather of David, Solomon, the kings of Israel, and therefore also Jesus Christ, King Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. What a blessing from the Lord in the midst of all of this to be the mother of these two sons and these lines. Uh, Verse 30. When Rachel, remember precious little ewe lamb, Rachel, sweet Rachel, when she saw that she bore Jacob no children and she envied her sister, she said to Jacob, sweet Rachel, the little ewe lamb, give me children or I die. (laughs) And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, and this might sound familiar to us, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. So there's wife number three. And Jacob went into her for the consummation of their relationship. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me. And you might read those words and say, uh-oh. Because of what she's been scheming, but, but she didn't see it that way. She says, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Dan's name means to judge or to vindicate. And Rachel believed that God looked at what she was doing and approved of it. And that the birth of Dan was the evidence of God's approval. Something good happened. God must think I'm doing an awesome job. Remember, this is the very thing that Sarah did with Hagar and Abraham. And this was a common practice in those days. Again, a common, normal, cultural thing. When a wife was barren, the idea here of a surrogate motherhood through a servant. Uh, And we might think that's just ridiculous and crazy. They did not have the technologies that we have today. This was the way they figured it out in those days to solve this uh, this issue, this desire. Uh, This motherhood through a servant. In such a way that Bilhah was the mother of Dan, but she wasn't the mother of Dan. When it mattered, he'd belong to Rachel. Kind of like sharing a son, but not getting any of the credit. And there's our reminder again, too, that, that common uh, 
or culturally popular, culturally normal, that does not equal good or righteous or even healthy. And, and while we're at it, also a reminder that, that just because some positive came out of our actions, like the birth of this beautiful baby boy, that does not mean that God is approving of those actions. Our experiences can lie to us. Uh, what it means is that God is incredibly patient and merciful. And also because he loves his children and disciplines us for our good, to make us more like Christ, this story may not be over. There's more going on here. Okay? Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. His name comes from the word for struggle or wrestling. And this is, this is the name of this sermon series through Genesis 25 through 36. The struggle. The struggle. You might remember my, my working title as I was thinking through what we were going to call this whole thing. Before I settled on the struggle, the working title was Kicking and Screaming Our Way to Heaven. Uh, in these passages, people are struggling with one another and struggling against God. And he is faithfully, graciously, mercifully moving the ball forward in his grand master plan the whole time. But Rachel here says she has struggled, wrestled against her sister, and she thinks she's prevailed. Uh, so first of all, let's think about this too. Because this is the cultural norm and this is the way that you show your worth as a woman, she felt a delight and a joy and a peace in this victory that she's having, isn't she? Even though it was what she was doing was not in accord with the word of God. So we can also say this, just because something good came out of something that we did, it doesn't mean that it was right. But also, just because there's a sense of peace... I feel like I'm being myself now. Remember, in our fallen condition, we're sinners. And so sin will be in unison with our sinful desires. It doesn't feel right for a sinner to live in righteousness. So just a sense of peace does not mean it's in accord with the word of God. And Rachel needs to learn this. Rachel needs to learn this. But we think about this too. For Rachel to say, I've prevailed. And we think about this, this, this contest of children being born. We think about, wait a minute, what, what's the head count at the moment? Scoreboard. Rachel has two kiddos through, through Bilhah to Leah's four so far. So it looks like Leah should be winning. But remember, the competition is not for the number of kids. Those women are competing for the love of Jacob. And Rachel feels with these two children, she has secured that, for sure. And so her taunting gets this fire burning in Leah's heart all over again. And Leah has some more fight left in her. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Wife number four. But as a surrogate, just like Bilhah. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called this name Gad. And Gad means, if you can guess, good fortune. Good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. 
So she called his name Asher, meaning happy one. But, but who's happy? Was she wishing happiness for Asher? Was she calling him happy one? Because, oh, she was so sure he was going to be a happy man. No, no, Leah's the happy one. And she's happy because her servant bore a child in competition with her sister and her servant. Asher was born for Leah's good pleasure, but he wasn't in reality. Uh, Leah's the happy one because she thinks she's going to beat Rachel after all for the honor of being the beloved wife. This is their battle. And the battle doesn't get less and less as time goes on in this struggle. It just gets more and more severe, and we see that in verse 14. We also see uh, this isn't happening all instantaneously. Reuben is now old enough to be out in the field. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Uh, Back then, mandrakes were believed to be, and that's all that matters, right? Mandrakes were believed to be uh, able to increase desire and to help barren women conceive. Uh, Mandrakes were called love apples by different ancient cultures. Rachel said to Leah, please give me, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. This is Rachel. We think, man, the nerve of this woman. She knows exactly what she's asking for, and she knows exactly who she's asking it from. And she's being all nice about it, right? Please, can you give me some of your mandrakes? That kind of thing just makes your teeth grind, right? Rubbing it in. But she said to her, so Leah says to Rachel, verse 15, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? I had him first as a pointed pointed question. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And then because, because Rachel wants these mandrakes to get what she wants in the end, and because she also wants to show just how much authority she holds as the beloved wife, the authority that she holds over her husband's nightly schedule. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight. I'm giving you both permission in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Rachel is giving Leah permission to be with Jacob. This is messed up. It's messed up. And then when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. He goes along with it. And God listened to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name, the baby boy, Issachar. And that word means reward. And so just to recap here, Rachel gave Leah permission to be with Jacob. Leah told Jacob she'd hired him, and he went with that. When Leah had Issachar, she counted him as her wages. She had earned this child. And the way that she believed that she had earned him, the work that she had done to receive these wages in return, was that she gave Zilpah to Jacob as a concubine to have more children in competition with Rachel. That's how she earned him. Again, this is messed up. Leah thinks God is blessing her for using her servant to have more children. Rachel got the mandrakes, and Leah got pregnant. Jacob is now being traded and bartered between women for the purpose of a procreation contest. He is like a purchased horse put out to stud, an animal. 
Now, they thought they were fighting each other for his love, but at this point, neither Leah nor Rachel is loving him or anyone else. And Zilpah and Bilhah, specifically, two women made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect, are being dragged through this battle between these sisters, uh, also being used to breed in this competition. No one is being loved here. This is messed up. We get to choose our actions. We do not get to choose the consequences. And sin, it looks like a little thing here, a little thing there, always takes you farther than you want to go. And think about this now. These people are facing crises and having to make decisions that simply do not exist in a relationship between one man and one woman. There's a reason this is messed up, and there is a reason things got where they got. There's a reason they're having to make these ridiculous decisions. Just a chain reaction. Event after event after event. These decisions that simply do not exist in a relationship between one man and one woman. And we know this. There's other decisions that are made because of sin in those relationships too, right? But not ones like these. And when we live in this world of sin, we can agree with this, and and we've experienced this, when we have to respond to the consequences of, of the sin of this world, the sin of others, our own sin, there's a lot of tough things we have to work through, aren't there? Decisions we never thought we were going to have to make. Now, two takeaways from that. One, there is peace in following Jesus with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are benefits to obedience. And we also say to that, praise God for his grace. (laughs) Because every single one of us has stuff in our life that's there because of our own sin, don't we? And, And then two, we've all been through these times of dealing with these hard decisions that are born in sinful choices, sometimes our own, sometimes the sin of others. And when we are going through those times, church, in humility, we're needed in our own repentance, May we have an attitude of love, patience, grace that we have been given by God as we work together in community, in relationship, when we have to work through these difficulties together. We need each other to do this. God has given us to each other to work through these things. In verse 19, Leah conceived again. And she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. And now, now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. Three wasn't enough. Six must do it. And so she called his name Zebulun, which means honor. And then afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Even though we know from later passages in Genesis that Dinah was not the only daughter. There are other passages that speak of daughters in plural. Uh, Her birth and her name are included here for some foreshadowing of an important event we'll see in Genesis 34. Uh, Also, interestingly, Dinah's name would have been the feminine form of Dan. So if we're thinking like Andrew, Andrea, Daniel, Daniela, that kind of a thing. Dan, Dinah. Remember, that name means judgment or vindication. Uh, Dan was Bilhah's first son, Rachel's servant, and Rachel gave him that name to show that she had been vindicated and proved by God 
for giving Rachel Bilhah. And now Leah names her daughter to show her vindication over Rachel. So even the girls' names are being given here to cut into each other. And then verse 22, Rachel finally is going to have a son of her own. So she'll finally be content, right? Maybe not. Uh, Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called this name Joseph, saying, Thank you, Lord, for your grace in my life. No, may the Lord add to me another son. Remember, when our desire is outside of Christ, that bar will always move. Now, the meaning of Joseph's name is written right into the text here. Rachel named her, may he add, as in give me another son. I finally have a son, now give me another one. And the fact that Rachel felt her reproach had been taken away, it also says something about how she really felt about Dan and Naphtali. If they were her boys in her heart before the birth of Joseph, are they now? Uh, But this idea of reproach was a very real thing in that culture for a barren woman. A barrenness was a source of ridicule in this culture. Uh, Sometimes today, children are seen as a hindrance and and an obstacle. Uh, Back then, barrenness was, was ridiculed. It was not to be pitied. It was not pitied. It was rebuked. It was disdained. Women were counted as worthwhile and blessed only when they would bear children and preferably sons. So if a woman was barren, she was treated as worthless, uh, specifically by the other ladies in town. And would have struggled for sure with that feeling of worthlessness. And this may have only added to Rachel's desire to flaunt the affection that she knew she had from Jacob. If she couldn't have kids, she was going to flaunt what she had what she thought she had, which was Jacob's affection. It just drove that deeper into this dispute between them. And now that she has one son, well, Zilpah, Bilhah, they've got two. She's still inferior. God, give me another one. Take away all my reproach so I can at least be on, on level terms with these other ladies. So we, we, we look at all this. We say, whoo. Right? And as we close up today, just just a couple things that we can learn about God and and about ourselves. I think it is really important as we walk away from this passage today that we remember that as these women continue to war with each other over something that could never truly satisfy them, God showed mercy and compassion. We have a compassionate God. When Leah was at her lowest God blessed her with children. After Rachel had had gone so low as to barter for mandrakes, and then watch Leah have more children in the after effects of that, God did eventually give her a son. And he will later give her the other son, Benjamin. God, our God is a long-suffering, compassionate God. He is a God to be feared and to be obeyed. And he is a patient God with his children as we grow. As he works graciously in our life to give us growth. And faithfully continuing to conform us into the image of Christ. Knowing that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we know this, that every good and perfect gift is given to us as a gift of his grace. We are sinners. 
Our salvation is a gift of grace. The good things that we have in this life are grace, gifts of grace. We're also reminded of God's sovereignty. God had committed to making a nation of people out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's seed. And by his grace, even in the midst of all of this mess, God accomplished his will. God brought this good out of all this. And what we just read about today was the birth of nearly all the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God was in control. And God remains. He is still in control today. And he can bring good out of any mess this world can throw up at him. And he's called us to work in and amongst it and in the midst of it to magnify his name in this world. And part of that control that God has, as I said earlier, was the birth of the father of this kingly line in Israel, this line of Judah, which would become the line of David, which would become the line of Christ. You might remember that Rachel felt that her reproach had been taken away. Uh, the disapproval from people that would have been given to her from other people at that time. And sometimes we might think and we might feel that the greatest thing that we could possibly have is the approval and the affirmation of people around us. But there is a far greater problem than, than what man thinks of us. And that greater problem is our sin. And we are not in the place of God to take that away. But God, rich in his mercy and grace, provided for our sin to be taken away through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Church, God has given us his grace. He has given us his mercy, his love. He has taken away our guilt through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And no amount of children or or fame or fortune or health or anything else we may clamor for in this world could ever give us the rest, peace, security, or joy that God has provided. And nothing this world offers could certainly save us. No way. God has given these things by his grace. God is the giver of these gifts. And may these truths cause our hearts to remain fixed on him when other desires and temptations come for our good, for our growth, for our true joy, and ultimately for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you as we as we read through a passage like this and we see all of this striving, struggling, warring, wrestling for things that are not even satisfying, that will prove to be empty, uh, broken cisterns. God, we thank you that we also see in these passages uh, your unchangeableness, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kind love, your patience. And God, we thank you for this knowing that we come to you as sinners. 
that, that you showed your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we are redeemed and given Christ's righteousness as gifts of your grace. God, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you have made us joint heirs with Christ, that you will give us eternal life, that you're going to make all things new, and that we'll be able to enjoy you forever in these things, in these promises. God, we are right to see these things and know that is not fair, but it is so good. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your gift, your gifts to us. And I pray that in in, in glorying in these wonderful truths and in these wonderful promises, that the desires of our hearts that are, that are rooted in this world and these temporary things, even when they are good things to desire, Lord, that they would never overcome or overpower, that we would out-desire those things more than we desire you. That we would take our feet off of the solid rock that is Jesus Christ and place them on things that are shifting sand. And God, I pray that you would give us courage that we would love one another faithfully. We love our families, our neighbors, that we would magnify your name. And we do. We look at this world around us right now and we, we may understand and know that if we do these things and if we live this way, there will be trouble. And Lord, we also know that Jesus promised us that that'd be the way it is. That the world hated him and that the world will hate his people. God, we know that you love us. And that your word is faithful and true and good. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage to, to be faithful to your promises, to be faithful to the truth, and to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. That we would faithfully, lovingly proclaim the truth of the gospel and desire man's good. So God, give us grace for these things as we would go from here today, even, even tomorrow perhaps, as we spend time with family and friends. May the truth of your love and, and the love manifested through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins be on the tip of our tongues that you would share this love with those that we love. And then may you, in all of this, be glorified through us, your people. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.